Hello. Greetings. So glad that you've joined us. We're so glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, after Peter has made the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus commends him and declares, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus established that he would build his church. Now in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul provides a dual metaphor of Christ and the church with husband and wife. Christ is husband, husband is Christ. Church is wife, wife is church. And in verse 32, we understand that Paul is saying that uh, he's been talking about the fact that what he's been discussing refers to Christ in the church. And there's a lot of great stuff there. We want to focus today, though, on this idea in verse 25. Following, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's a very important point there, that the church is to be without spot or blemish or wrinkle. How can it be said that the church is holy and spotless? And what is to be done to ensure that the church is a reflection of the body of Christ, the collective of the saved, therefore holy and spotless? And that's what we'd like to consider today from the pages of Scripture. What does it mean to be holy? He says we are to be holy without blemish. Well, uh, in Ephesians 5, 25 and 27, Paul's talking about how Christ has sanctified the church. In verse 25, sanctification is to be set apart, to be made holy. Uh, when we are sanctified, so we're set apart, and we need to remain pure and to be in that position. And so holiness is being set apart for a devoted or consecrated use. It implies being pure. And of course, what's spotless or without blemish means just that. There's one without spot or blemish in any form. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, uh, Paul exhorts us to not be defiled in body or spirit. And so if we're going to be spotless, we need to avoid the spots or blemishes that may come upon us. And of course, in the context that we're discussing, such spots or blemishes are sin. We be very clear about something throughout our conversation, as Paul has himself established in Ephesians 5, that Jesus loved the church, gave himself for her, to sanctify her, by having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The sanctification, the, the being made without spot or blemish, comes from Jesus himself. Jesus purifies the church because he died for her, because based on the repentance members, he cleanses them. Uh, all, all of these things, it, it's not based upon us, it's based upon Jesus. You see, in Titus 3, 4 through 6 as well. Uh, we can't atone for our own sin. We can't cleanse ourselves. But in Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, it's important to note that the Hebrew author suggests that uh, if you have sinned willfully, having sinned deliberately, there's no longer this... Uh, uh, expectation of forgiveness, but a fearful of, uh, deliberation about the coming judgment. And that, uh, it, in fact, if we sin without repentance, there's very little hope because we have crucified the Son of God afresh. 
So therefore, if we're going to be holy and spotless, even though we recognize that that cleansing comes from the Lord Jesus, it's not something that we deserve or earn, we yet nevertheless need to avoid sin. We need to be active in obedience to God in all matters, continually confessing, repenting of our sin, lest we become defiled. And thus we must act the part of the sanctified, being a peculiar people who manifest righteousness and no longer participate in sin. And that's very important. This goes along with a very important metaphor of the church in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 1 Peter 2, also in Ephesians 2.20, the idea of the church as a temple. A temple is a place where God makes his presence to dwell. A temple, by its very nature, must be a holy place because God is holy and where God dwells is holy. And very vivid evocation Ezekiel when the presence of the glory of God leaves the temple because of the defilement of the people. That if we, in fact, are going to be uh, the church that Jesus died for, we need to be a holy people so that God can dwell in our midst. But how can it be said that the church as a collective is be holy and spotless? How can this temple be holy and spotless? Well, the church, uh, a lot of times people think of institutions or organizations, and therefore there's some idea that it could have transgression that somehow is not something that the individual members may have. But that's not at all the way the church is envisioned in the New Testament. The church is a collective of those who comprise it, individual Christians. A local church is a collective of Christians who meet in a given time and place to glorify God and encourage one another. A uni- the universal church is all the Christians ever. So for a local congregation to be holy and spotless, its members must be holy and spotless. And that's why it's important to understand that the, there are commands for all of us. It's not as if, you know, there are certain people who can just wallow in sin and the rest of us have to be righteous. No, that all of us are called upon to no longer uh, be conformed to this world, be transformed by the new of our mind in Romans 12, 2, that we would all be living holy sacrifices in Romans 12, 1. All of us are called to manifest the fruit of the Spirit and to renounce the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 through 23. We need to all be the light of the world. The city set on the hill that cannot be hidden. Yes, that's true of us as a collective in Matthew 5, 13, 16, but it's true of a collective because it's true of us as individuals. If we're going to be true witnesses for Christ and we're going to convert souls, we need to do what we preach. After all, in Matthew 23, 1 through 3, Jesus condemns the Pharisees because they teach one thing but do something else. That's the definition of Pharisees, man, hypocrisy. And it's very uh, off-putting. And uh, not a few have given reason to, gen, to, to blaspheme because of the uh, ungodly, hypocritical behavior of Christians. And it's not justifiable. It should not be named among the people of God. And if we know the right thing to do but don't do it, it's sin in James 4.17. And that applies to all of us. We have no excuse if we preach the truth or we're not doing it. But even if we're not the one preaching, but we profess to be a Christian... Do we know what is right, but don't do it? Do we know that you are? we are to do good, but don't do it? If we want to really be saved, we need to be holy and spotless, and we need to strive to that end. But what happens if you're not holy and spotless? What happens if there is sin in a church? Well, if the sin is not known to fellow Christians, uh, you haven't gotten away with anything, because you can be certain that God does know. 
And you may deceive yourself, you may deceive your fellow Christians on earth, but unless there is repentance, the word that came from Jesus' mouth will judge you. And the sentence will be just. And many will call out, Lord, Lord, but not under the king, because they did iniquity in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And John 14, 12, 44 through 48. And that is why all need to repent, to change their heart and mind, come back to the truth, and confess their sins. But what happens if you recognize that somebody else has been doing things, and they're not holy and spotless? Now, that is why Jesus gave us wisdom in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Talking to the apostles there. Uh, so the idea there is you go and you tell them, you try to not make it a big deal, and you, you, your whole goal there is the restoration of the brother. That the restoration can be restored and all can be well. If you refuse to listen to you, you take witnesses. The witnesses can't testify to what you said he did, or she did, or what he, she says you did. They're there to witness to whether the brother is willing to hear and repent that, in fact, that the person has been talked to and they will or will not listen. And then, if they still refuse to listen, is taken to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, they're to be considered to be cast off. As Gentiles and tax collectors at that time, those are the untouchables, people you didn't want to associate with, which is going to be consistent with other evidence we have in Scripture. What's very important to note here is that Jesus doesn't say, if your brother sins against you, just forget about it move on. He, he, says, he expects that, you know, something is done about sin. Uh, but it's supposed to be handled in a certain way. He didn't say, if your brother sins against you, go and post it on social media and tell everybody you know, either. There's a very important ways that we're to handle these situations. And we hope and pray that we don't have to have it escalate to a high level. But unfortunately, there are times where it does have to escalate. And then what happens? This is a very difficult subject because... We're about to talk about church discipline, as it's often called, disfellowship or disassociation. And it has a lot of bad connotations. People think it's, it's an awful idea many times. And unfortunately, probably the biggest challenge with it is the way that it's been executed. And unfortunately, we have to admit that there are plenty of times that church discipline has not been done effectively because it has not been done well. It has not been managed well. People have not been godly throughout the process. There's been a lot of selfish ambition and jealousy, perhaps uh, some anger, some other things going on. And a lot of times the way those situations are handled just do not reflect well on anybody involved. And a lot of it comes because the attitudes were not right. The attitude was an attitude of self-righteousness and sanctimony, when in fact, throughout the New Testament, there is this warning about dealing with people who are in transgression. In Romans 3.23, all of sin, all has fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John 5.8, the one who says he does not sin is a liar. Uh, the truth is not in him. In fact, that's why in Galatians 6, that when you go to restore somebody who has fallen away, Fallen, gone astray. You do so as a spirit of meekness and humility, looking also to yourself, lest you be tempted. So there's this realization hey, we are all sinners. And um, if 
all sinners have removed from the church, there'd be nobody in the building. There'd be nobody in the room. Um, on the other hand, unrepentant sin does need to be addressed. And just as we can talk about situations that uh, church discipline has been handled badly, we can also talk about situations where, because there was no church discipline, the situation got out of control and things went very badly. We have a situation in Scripture that is discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul astonished at what's going on in Corinth. He has heard that there's something going on that isn't even heard among Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Uh, we should not believe that, in fact, that there is it is his biological mother is probably a stepmother. But the idea that even pagans don't tolerate that, and um, the Gentiles don't do those things. The Corinthians have shown, hey, we're tolerant. We let this happen. Uh, we didn't want to judge him. Something of that sort. We don't know exactly the spirit in Corinth. Uh, maybe they're just vexed about it and don't know what to do about it, uh, but it, it doesn't seem good because they're arrogant about it. They, they think that the way they're handling it is, is somehow a virtue. But uh, Paul just brings down censure because this person needs to be handed over to Satan for the things that he's doing. Um, he's concerned that uh, the, the little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says in verse 6. They are to cleanse out the old leaven. Uh, and he said he wrote to them in their, his letter not to associate with sexually immoral people in verse 9. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so there's this responsibility that the church is given to remove this man because he is sinning unrepentantly. But why? Why do we need to get in other people's business? Do we think they're better than we, that we're better than they are? Again, we could do these things as God commanded them, but there's a very important reason for it. And that's, as Paul said, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Uh, leaven is yeast. And if you've ever been involved in bread making, you understand that you put a little bit of yeast in the in the dough, and the yeast multiplies rapidly, and that's how bread rises because of the expansion of yeast. And this is how sin is is considered. That a little bit of sin that's tolerated, all of a sudden more and more sin gets tolerated, and all of a sudden the the whole group is just saturated with sin. Because the person who is sinning gets emboldened in their sin. People who see that person sin and see that nothing is done about them get emboldened to sin. And then everybody's sinning and everybody's justifying their sin because everybody else is sinning. And if you dare stop, try to stop that cycle and point out, hey, that is wrong. Well, why didn't you point out this person's wrong or this person's wrong? As if somehow that justifies uh, not pointing out the first person's wrong in that circumstance. Um, and that's why... We need to, when public flagrant sin is, is, is obvious, we need to address it. When sin rears its head and it's un, not repentant, we need to address it. Because it infects and destroys the church. We mentioned there's so many times where church discipline goes wrong. And that is unfortunate. But there are times where it can be effective. Um, if, and the reason it can be effective is because if association is what it should be, and somebody is well connected to the community of the people of God, and they're deprived of that connection, that they will acutely feel that loss, and that will be a powerful motivator to, in fact, repent. And in Second Corinthians chapter 2 and chapter 7, it seems fairly clear that the man of First Corinthians 5 repented and returns to the Lord's body. He 
no longer had his father's wife. In fact, Paul had to tell them to stop being so hard on him and welcome him back. Um, and the Corinthians had been made sorrowful because they'd accepted what was wrong in their midst. So, there's it, 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 it's designed to encourage Christians to reconsider what they're doing when they're not doing what they should be doing. And it's association is the strongest tool we have. We, we can't force, we can't coerce. Uh, only God in the end judges those who go to heaven or hell, and thanks be to God for that in James 4, Romans 14. What we can do is, do we maintain our connection with them? And if they lose the connection, do they lose something of value? Now, if there's no value in the connection to them, then it's very unlikely that the loss of that connection is going to mean much to them. And that's where a lot of the times disassociation doesn't prove as effective. But where that association is what it should be, and then disassociation is a very powerful tool, and even the possibility thereof can often be an encouragement to persist in righteousness, or at least a warning about the consequences of disobedience. And at a very other, we're kind of held accountable. Uh, in First Corinthians five, here uh, that in fact the Corinthians were judged because of how they handled the situation, that they were considered arrogant, that. Uh, they were rebuked for what they did, and they were not in a good position because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. So it wasn't a situation where they could just say that, well, uh, that person's just got to deal with their own issues, and we have nothing to do with it. In Revelation chapter 2, 18 through 22, the Thi brethren of Thyatira were, were rebuked because they tolerated that woman Jezebel and her uh, forms of deceiving the people. And so we have to ask, do we want to face God in judgment if we not work to maintain the pure and holiness of the church to an acceptable degree. There are rewards for doing this kind of work. Uh, it's a very difficult work to try to work with people who, who are in sin, in, who, know, who are Christians, and it's very difficult for a lot of reasons. If the person, unfortunately, has not come back to the truth, at least you tried and that you love them and did what you could try to do to help. And you've done the best that you could many times. And you've diligently worked to make sure that uh, the church is what it's supposed to be to the glory of God. It's worth pointing out that as James ends his letter in James chapter 5, uh, verses 19 and 20, he goes on to say, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That uh, it's encouraging that you know when people can bring people back, it's a hard work, but there's a great reward in it. Excuse me. And as we mentioned earlier, there's also Galatians six, uh, one and two. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. We've got to be concerned about the word encouragement. Uh, the word encouragement, a lot of times things are called encouragement that aren't really encouragement. Uh, they're really rebukes. They're really teardowns. And you know what? Hey, sometimes people need rebukes. Sometimes people need teardowns. Uh, but let's not get Orwelling in our use of language. That's not encouraging. That's not strengthening. It is tearing down so we can build up. It is trying to rebuke so we can have an opportunity to strengthen. Uh, let's be clear what we're doing. 
And we need to approach Christians who may be in sin with appropriate humility. It's a world of difference between coming to somebody with a hot-headed accusation and with uh, a theory of smugness or superiority or sanctimony and an attitude of camaraderie, an attitude of humility. Hey, you know, we struggle, we go through difficulties, we're here for you, but you know this, this can't continue. And this needs to be addressed. And a lot of times... The, the, the way a message is communicated uh, will go a long way to its reception. And we need to be very careful about that, where many times we can exacerbate a situation because we're addressing it in a less than godly way. We need to always remember Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 15, that yes, those who walk disorderly need to be corrected, they need to be disassociated from necessary, but that we need to warn them as a brother, they are not our enemies. And a lot of times, unfortunately, Christians will treat those who have been disassociated from as worse than an unbeliever and as the enemy. And that, that is very unfortunate. That does not go along with what the Lord has said about how we're to treat those who have left the faith. We want to warn them as a brother that they should come back. So the church needs to be holy and spotless. Jesus does cleanse those who seek to follow him, who trust in him, who confess of their confess and repent of their sins, as we see in Titus 3 and 1 John 1 and verse 9. If we're going to be holy, we need to be separate from the world. We need to avoid sin and obey God. And we all struggle on that. We all fail at times. We all need to repent. But there are times where people are persistently doing things in, and it becomes evident, and it needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed not because we think we're better than they are. It doesn't need to be addressed because we're trying to be smug. Uh, we need to address it because a little leaven leavens a whole lump, and that person's soul is in danger, and we need to uh, use all the resources we have at our disposal to try to encourage them to do what is right and good and return to the Lord Jesus. And if all else fails, we need to use the ultimate resource we have, which is the severance of association. Therefore, we do well to strive to be holy and pleasing to God, to trust in Him, to pursue holiness ourselves, and to find ways to encourage each other to pursue holiness. We're glad that you've joined us again, and if you've been benefited by this lesson, you'd like to think it's of value, we encourage you to please share it with uh, your friends and others on social media. We encourage you to consider other discussions on the theme or other themes. Maybe you'd like to talk about having a Bible study or participate in a correspondence course, maybe a prayer request. You'd like to check us out. Uh, come visit with us. Please find us online at VeniceRichardChrist.org. We're also on social media. And if I can be of any service in any way, you can reach me at my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.